Welcome to the Dietitian's Dish Podcast. We are Gina and Nicole, two dietitian mamas and good friends living in Ohio and Michigan. This is a podcast dedicated to making whole family wellness more fun and less stressful. Whether you're listening in the car or slumped on the couch with a glass of wine, welcome. Hi, everyone. Thanks for joining us. I'm Gina. And I'm Nicole. And today we are dishing about breast health for Breast Cancer Awareness Month with Dr. Catherine Siren, a breast care and imaging specialist and board certified radiologist right here in Columbus. But first, let's do some catching up. Nicole, what's new? Okay. I have a mishmash here. (laughs) Okay. Um, Me too. I couldn't say it on the last episode because uh, I threw Mark a surprise birthday party last Friday. Nice. Uh, So his birthday is 40th, which... I think I agree with you now is officially over the hill. Um, I know we had the debate on a previous episode, but um seems that it, based on his attitude, he's like a little Eeyore running around here now, 40 years old, but he, uh, <laughs> uh, we nearly pulled it off. So it was at a local brewery outside and I had made a Facebook group, work friends, hockey friends, you know, the whole bit. And uh, everything was going great. Uh, we were walking up. I had texted a couple of people as soon as I got out of the car to say we're here and we were supposed to be there at 7:30 it's like 7:29 and we're walking into the brewery and Mark literally runs into my brother my oh. brother who lives in Chicago i mean they oh. like physically run into each other and he's holding my niece this beautiful filipino baby i'm like uh maybe he doesn't see him i'm like yeah like done okay oh my gosh so he's like we i was like he he goes I'm going to go to the bathroom. And I was like, okay, I'll get you a drink. What do you want? He's like, I don't care. And then we're walking over to like the side of the building where I knew everyone was. And he's like, what'd you do, Nicole? What did you do? What'd you do, Nicole? Um, But it was great. His parents had come. Like I said, my brother and his girlfriend and their baby. It was, it was great. Um, So last weekend ended up being a house full of people, which was, it was good. Um, Book recommendation. So it was my book club uh, pick this month. And uh-huh. that always stresses me out. So I do a ton of research to find the perfect book. And I highly, highly recommend it. It was called A Good Neighborhood. Okay. Um, I think you would really like it, Gina. So I just downloaded it on my Kindle. Okay, cool. So yeah. it's um, yeah, it it it's uh it's great. The one complaint that people had at the book club was that it's written by a white woman. And when you read it, you'll understand why that may give a bit of a wrong rub. But I still think it's well worth a read. To me, I think it it it's still it doesn't jade my opinion at all of anything that happened in the book. I still thought it was very just thought provoking and and great. Um, Our last episode was on um, exercise and at home workouts and all of that. just have to share that I officially love bar. I know you and I were texting about this. Peloton now has bar classes and there's Mm -hmm. a bunch of other ones on YouTube, but it's the first um, like workout that I didn't hate. I don't think I said that on the last episode. Did I? The, the, about the Peloton bar? About loving bar. Did I say that? I don't think so. Huh? Okay. Well, I I mean, it's your first like resistance, non cardio workout that you don't haven't hated. Correct. Yeah. Yes. And would you even call it resistance? I mean, it can be depending on the bar class that you're doing. Yeah. I, I mean, it's just like a leg burner. Um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It, yeah, it was great. It was, it's just very clear and concise and I, I just really enjoyed it. 
Um, and then I, I got some new like techie stuff too for fitness related stuff. I got a new heart rate monitor shoot and I forgot to look up the name of it, but I will include it in the show notes, but it goes on your upper arm or like, okay, like just below your elbow, like the crease of your arm. And Mm -hmm. it's has really good reviews and it was super easy to get set up and everything. Um, so I'm loving my new heart rate monitor and I also got the new Apple watch. Okay. So if you got the Apple watch, why do you need a heart rate monitor? A and B, why do you need a heart rate monitor? <laughs> this goes back to my metrics issue Ugh. and the heart rate monitor connects to the Peloton. Okay. I have heard that the Apple Watch the Apple Watch may be able to kind of connect with the Peloton, but I I just I want to make sure that it's 100% accurate. So I'm comparing the two. We'll see. It was not expensive. I think the heart rate monitor was like $40, but it's rechargeable. I was blasting through like batteries for my heart, like my chest strap heart monitor, mm-hmm. like every four rides, it seemed like, because it didn't turn off. Are you checking your heart rate while you exercise purely for, to make sure that your heart isn't, heart rate isn't going too high? Like what is the, what is the purpose? I, it just helps me know like how hard of a workout it was. Like, okay. yeah, it's, it's got like different zones. Um, uh-huh. yeah, that's all. Okay. It's just another metric I enjoy. Uh, I know. <laughs> no I'm judgment. Crazy. Just no. curiosity. <laughs> <laughs> What's going on with you in Columbus? I literally have nothing. It is so boring over here. The only... Hey, you're not are... home with like COVID, so that's good. No, thank goodness. No, I have some really stupid updates, but I'm going to share them. So I think I share this on our Instagram story, but... I had this Cabbage Patch doll and I might have even said this on this podcast, but her name was Nicole because I used to be obsessed with the name Nicole and Jessica when I was when I was little. So we found Nicole somewhere like in our basement and and now this Cameron sleeps with Nicole every night and every night before before he goes to bed, he says, mommy, Nicole is crying and I have to put her up to my breast and feed her. So that's fun. And actually today, no joke, this has never happened. I was coming down to podcast and he said, bring Nicole down to podcast with you. I was like, okay, I will. So I've got Nicole in my lap right now. Podcast. <laughs> so I'm with two Nicoles tonight. Uh, oh my next gosh, update. That's hilarious. <laughs> I know. And you're, uh, I mean, that makes me not hate my, I don't hate my name, but Nobody is like, I love the name Nicole. Like that doesn't happen. I, You're so funny. I know when I was little and I, and I, I, I tried to think about why I even knew that name. I had no friends named Nicole. I had a friend named Jessica. That's why I loved that name. It wasn't really a very popular name then. I'm not sure where I even heard it, but I was kind of obsessed with it. it there must've <laughs> been a Nicole on a show or something. But I, 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 that was what I wanted my name to be. And uh, so I just decided to name my Cabbage Patch Nicole instead. If I couldn't have the name, then I'll just give it to her. All right. So next on my update list, Lexapro. And just a little update, because I had talked about this a little bit in previous episodes, my whole sleep saga. My doctor put me on a low dose of Lexapro so that maybe I could balance out my um, serotonin when I have PMS, right? So when you're, when you have PMS the week before your period, your serotonin drops. And for some people, it makes them tired. For others, it prevents them from falling asleep. Well, I'm in that category. I can't stand it. So I went on the Lexapro. I will tell you, not only did it make me super tired, which actually went away after a while, but I won't go into too much detail, but let's just say intimacy was an issue. (laughs) So I did go off of it and I'm, I'm now I'm just curious if any of our listeners have had that same problem. I mean, obviously you don't have to tell me, but I 
I mean, it was really bad. Uh, and again, I'm not going to go into too much detail, but I was on a really small, small dose. And I realize I should I should probably preface this this conversation by saying there are other reasons to be on a, a drug like Lexapro, such as depression and anxiety, in which case, if I had either of those, I am sure the intimacy issue would have taken a backseat to making me feel better. But for me, helping me with the sleep, it just wasn't worth it. Um, but I don't know if anyone has a recommendation for if any if anyone has taken a drug like that for PMS symptoms and it didn't affect their intimacy. I'm really curious to know what that was because I I would have stayed on it if it wasn't for that. I I don't know anyway. So I just wanted to kind of give an update on that. So I'm not I'm no longer taking that. I'm kind of just back to taking my melatonin chews when I need them, which really is is just fine. Another update, and this is so, so random, but something that I think is worth chatting about. All of a sudden, Paige, and I'm going to do some research on this because I think I might bring it up as a question on our Q&A episode, a question that I have. I had to figure this out. How, and I'm sure I'm not the only one that has this question, but Paige all of a sudden will not take her multivitamin. And I am pretty big on the importance of a multivitamin, especially for young kids, because they generally don't eat very balanced or get all their nutrients. I'm not saying that they must have a multivitamin, but especially for Paige who has GERD and takes um, Pepsid AC. And when you take something like that, it reduces the acid in your stomach, which also reduces the iron absorption. So for her, I think getting that iron is very, very important. So all of a sudden she just will not take her her supplement. Her It's a Flintstone vitamin. She's been taking it for years all of a sudden, she just refuses to take it. I've tried like three other things. She refuses. And it's giving me anxiety. I'm like, geez, you need, I, you got you to gotta get the iron. So here I am, this, I'm going just bonkers trying to figure out how to get her some iron. I realized I could just feed her some dark greens and some, I don't know, meat. But I, I anyway, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to work on this. So I have a remedy when we get to our Q&A episode. Because I'm, I'm sure I'm not the only one. And, and iron is disgusting. I mean, if you've ever taken, like, chewed an iron supplement, it really does taste gross. I'm going to figure something out. <laughs> and then lastly, COVID woes. Okay, so we were invited to a party. We have gone to all the parties we've been invited to as of, you know, the, the start of COVID, generally speaking. Why? Because they were all outdoors. Now that it gets starting to get, you know, colder and parties are no longer really outdoors, what what would you do in this situation? So we were invited to a birthday party for one of our friend's sons who's going to be four. It sounded like so much fun. It was one other couple and then the parents, um, nanny, and then like mom and dad. So maybe like a total of 10 people, which eh, it's fine. In clo- obviously in their house, which is a pretty open, you know, space, no masks, probably not six feet distance, but you know, a small group. She texts me a couple of days ago and says, is it okay if it's 30 people? It's 15 kids and 15 adults. I'm like, uh, n- no, it's not okay. Do you think I'm being completely anal? Uh, you're probably talking to the wrong person. I have not been you as go. COVID cautious. <laughs> well, so here, so Mark's birthday was about that many people. However, it was outdoors and it was yeah. primarily people that we've been around this entire time. Right. Um, so I, I'm truly not justifying my actions, I, I promise, because, you know, I think I think it's one of those things that any one of us, if we ended up in a social situation and somebody got COVID because of us or somebody we or our children or whoever got COVID, you know what I mean? Like 
mm-hmm. regrets, right? So I don't know how to answer that question. I think you really have to, I think it's very dependent on what's going on in your community because obviously that's huge. Um, And I think you just have to make the right choice for your family. But I appreciate at least that she told you. Um, But you can't ask it in a way that's like, is that okay? That's okay, right? Like, (laughs) And she didn't. And she completely understood when I said no. Now, Nick, on the other hand, was questioning my sanity, but I- Because he wanted to go. He wants to go. I mean, I want to go, but I sure. just, that's too many people. And, and you know, I look it up on the CDC website and they, they kind of break it down to high risk, medium risk, low risk, and that's a high risk situation. And, and really, I'm not as worried about getting COVID as I am about my kids, you know, getting even a runny nose from one of the other kids and then having to stay home and get tested for COVID. You know what I mean? Yeah. There's just so many other things to think about at this point and it's, it's just not worth it. I just What's to. so hard about this whole situation is you and I both have children that are going to school every day. You know what I mean? Like, right, true. They are like the floodgates are open, and so it's hard to. And I again, I I I try not to be judgy about this kind of stuff because I truly believe it's a personal decision. But it is interesting to me that people just kind of sway one way or the other depending on the situation. That's all. Like, mm-hmm. there's no way to be consistent about all this. We're not going in a bunker for the next God knows how long, and it's it's just difficult. We're we're navigating our ways. I was thinking about this the other day because working in healthcare, and I'm getting off on a tangent here, and our podcast is going to go over an hour, um, but. <laughs> Back in March, when I was being deployed all over the health system, I didn't even have a mask going to work. I was sitting indoors face to face with patients without any PPE. And we knew nothing about COVID. You know, people were dying all over the place. It was, you know, I'm not going to call it fake news, but the the news was just um, they wanted to. I mean, we were all scared. Right. I mean, you were hearing of the scariest of scary situations and the worst of the worst. And it's that's not what we're hearing anymore. It is serious. This is a real thing. And we're just learning what that looks like now. And I think it's just a personal decision. And I'm working on that. As a social, very social, extroverted person, it is, this is challenging for me. And as you share, like going into these colder months where we're all going to be forced indoors, it's going to be hard. It is. I'm, I'm, I'm dreading it so, so much. I'm not as much of a socialite as you are, but I'm, I'm like, I'm, I'm not, I'm like me, I'm in a medium, like I'm right, right at 50, 50 mm-hmm. on the spectrum. I'm like at half, I would say <laughs> you're at like a hundred percent. I'm about half, maybe 75%. Just know. do some wellness checks in a couple months. I'm probably <laughs> unwell. Okay. <laughs> if I'm making the right choice, I'm using air quotes. I'm probably unwell. <laughs> right. Oh gosh. All right. I'll be sure to check up on you. <laughs> All right. So before we begin, just a quick favor to ask of everyone. If you like this podcast, please write us a review. Reviews on iTunes are everything to us and they really help us reach more people. So we'd appreciate it so much. Also, it's important to note that today's episode is solely for informational purposes and it's not meant to replace the recommendations of your medical care team. We thought we needed to say that for sure. It's a very important topic though. October is Breast Cancer Awareness Month. And before we get into our conversation with Dr. Siren, let's talk a little bit about what exactly is breast cancer. So the following is from the Center for Disease Control. Breast cancer is a disease in which cells in the breast grow out of control. Breast cancer can begin in different parts of the breast. A breast is made up of three main parts, lobules, ducts, and connective tissue. The lobules 
I'm sorry. I think I'm saying that right. I think it's labials. No, it's lobules. It's lobules. Are the glands that produce milk. I actually looked this up before saying this too. It is. It's lobules. Um, They're the glands that produce the milk. And the ducts are the tubes that carry the milk to the nipple. And the connective tissue, which consists of fibrous and fatty tissues, surrounds and holds everything together. Wow, our breasts are amazing. Uh, But most uh, breast cancer actually begins in the ducts or the lobules. All right, so one in eight women will get uh, breast cancer in their lifetime. And today we want to welcome to our podcast, Dr. Siren, a breast care and imaging specialist and board certified radiologist right here in Columbus, Ohio. All right, so welcome, Dr. Siren. We're so glad to have you here. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about your background and your practice here in Columbus? Sure, yeah. Well, first of all, thank you for inviting me to have this discussion with you especially during, you know, as we approach Breast Cancer Awareness Month. Um, I am a dedicated breast radiologist, but I'm a little unique in that I combine my imaging expertise with a clinical-based practice. So um, I have a dedicated breast imaging solo practice, and I evaluate patients with symptoms, um, with concerns about breast cancer risk, as well as just providing routine screening and discussions about preventative care. So it's kind of a, 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 niche, a unique niche um, in Columbus. Mm-hmm. And um, I've been doing this for probably about 25 years. I think it's unique in that many individuals or radiologists who read mammograms are also reading other things. So they may be reading a mammogram next to a chest X-ray or a CT scan or a gallbladder ultrasound, et cetera. But all I do is read mammograms, perform breast ultrasounds, breast biopsies, anything breast related. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yeah. So um, if you could um, it, it, just explain a bit more about how family history specifically impacts a woman's risk for breast cancer and when might genetic counseling be useful? Sure. So Family history um, can be significant, although interestingly enough, the vast majority of women who develop breast cancer actually don't have any family history of breast cancer. So mm. every now and then I'll you know, be speaking with a patient and they'll say, oh, I wasn't really worried because I don't have any family history. And I have to remind them, well, unfortunately, we can't bank on that to confirm that we're going to be healthy or breast cancer free our entire life because only about 15% of women do have a family history of breast cancer. But when an individual does have breast cancer um, in a first-degree relative, such as a mother or sister or daughter on that maternal side, their breast cancer risk is somewhat elevated, about one and a half to two times just an average individual who doesn't have any family history. However, there is a subset of patients who have a striking family history um, that suggests that their family history of breast cancer could be related to a genetic defect. Mm -hmm. So we all carry a breast cancer gene, but in some individuals, that gene is defective. It doesn't work properly and it allows cells to just rapidly divide and kind of go crazy. About five, only about five to 10% of breast cancer cases are related to a faulty gene. But when women carry that gene, there's a very high likelihood that they'll develop breast cancer. There's about an 80% lifetime risk. So it's more likely than not Hmm. that they will develop it. And it's also been associated with an elevated risk for breast cancer in the other breast. 
and ovarian cancer, as well as some other less common cancers, pancreatic cancer, melanoma, um, prostate cancer, and men. And the interesting thing about the genetically based breast cancers is it can occur on the maternal or the paternal side. So mother or father's his family history is important in the genetically based cancers. They usually have a pretty striking history. So uh, we will notice multiple affected family members on either side of the family. So when we start seeing three or more breast cancer cases along the mother's side or along the father's side, or we see breast and ovarian cancer in the same family line, or we see breast cancer in young individuals in that family line. So breast cancer under the age of 50 or even more so under the age of 45, those are all red flags to make us start wondering, gosh, I wonder if this could be related to a genetic defect. So when we see those types of family histories, that's when we start entertaining a discussion of maybe genetic counseling and genetic testing is in order for these individuals. The reason that's important is because individuals, as I mentioned, who carry that gene defect have a very high likelihood of developing breast and or ovarian cancer. But there's also a 50% chance that everybody those patients are related are a direct blood relative to. So their children, their siblings, their parents, anybody that they're a blood, direct blood relative to could also carry that genetic defect and then also be at increased risk for developing those cancers. So once we identify one individual who has that defect, it kind of opens up an entire web of family members who also would benefit from genetic testing because of that risk. It's also important because individuals who find out that they have that genetic defect before they develop cancer can actually do some things to reduce or even eliminate the risk of developing breast cancer. We do have some um, programs or some regimens in place where individuals who have the genetic defect uh, can screen more frequently. So they screen every year with mammograms, but then we add MRI in addition. That's done every year as well. We usually space those exams six months apart. So individuals are being screened twice a year by two different screening mechanisms. We can also um, add a, an agent and a medicine that can help reduce the risk of developing breast cancer. These are anti-estrogen type um, medicines, and studies have shown that they can reduce the risk of developing breast cancer by about 50%. Wow. So that is one um, option that individuals can take. or we do have the option of prophylactic surgeries where patients actually remove the source of the breast cancer or, you know, their breasts. So mm -hmm. when individuals can find this out, then they do have some opportunities to really kind of get at this breast cancer risk at the forefront. So, okay. I, 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 that, that was so, so interesting. I, I honestly didn't know this. So if you didn't, if you have a family history where you know that there is no genetic defect, correct me if I'm wrong, but you said then if you have someone, let's say on your mother's side of, of the family who has had breast cancer, who has breast cancer, your chances are only, you said 15% greater to have breast no, cancer. No. I'm sorry. No. So sorry um, if that was confusing. So most women who develop breast cancer, so only about 15% of women who have, who develop breast cancer have a family member who's had breast cancer. Got it. So okay. You did say it like that. Of, yes. Yeah. Vast majority of women who develop breast cancer don't have any family history. 
So we can't really use that as a way to say, well, I don't have any family history. I don't need to get a mammogram. You know, I'm not at increased risk. But is it, would you say, you, you did say maternal side of the family. So if you do have a family history and it's not a, a genetic defect and it's on your paternal side, is that not as important? Yeah, correct. Okay. I didn't know that. Yeah. All right. Well, kudos to me. All my breast cancer is on my dad's side of the family. So. <laughs> Well, as long as you don't have more than three cases. <laughs> okay. All right. I'm, I'm already learning stuff. All right. Okay. So what are the top, and I know this is a loaded question and I'm sure there's lots. So what are the top modifiable risk factors for breast cancer? So that's a great question because the, the breast, so the interesting, another interesting thing about breast cancer is it's unlike other cancers. For instance, lung cancer, where we've identified that one thing that if we avoid, we can avoid getting it. Like if you're not a smoker, there's a low likelihood that you would ever develop lung cancer. Mm -hmm. But we've never been able to find that one thing that if we avoid, we can avoid getting breast cancer. Mm -hmm. um, there are certain things that are that do increase our risk that are not modifiable. The two most important being a being a woman and B, getting older. Those are two things, unfortunately, that we can't change. Mm -hmm. But you are exactly right that there are some risk factors that we can modify. Um, we can limit alcohol consumption. We can maintain a healthy body weight throughout our entire adult life. And we can be physically active and we can adopt a mostly plant-based diet. So mm -hmm. those are th some things that we can do to modify our risk. Also, one thing when um, women are contemplating, you know, pregnant, having a baby and contemplating, should I bottle feed or breastfeed? Breastfeeding and nursing has been shown to reduce breast cancer risk as well. So there are lots of things actually that we can do to be proactive to reduce our risk of breast cancer. Most of these are just lifestyle choices, things that we need to do our entire life, um, limiting alcohol consumption. So no more than three glasses of alcohol per week. Um, maintaining a normal BMI, and studies have shown that being overweight postmenopausally is a significant risk factor for breast cancer. So, mm -hmm. and and it's apparent that it is much harder to lose weight postmenopausally, much easier to start putting pounds on as our metabolism changes. So, mm -hmm. I encourage women to really achieve that normal BMI premenopausally and then just maintain it the whole rest of their life. <laughs> it's so easy to do. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm gonna main, you know, eating a, a good plant-based diet can help and also being mm -hmm. physically active. We do recommend women exercising at least five days a week, 30 minutes a time. Mm -hmm. Although many of us are just so busy with jobs or maybe two jobs, children, you know, parents to care for. And sometimes it's really hard to be able to exercise five days a week. So it is allowable to just exercise three days, a little bit longer, 45 mm -hmm. to 60 minutes each time. Mm -hmm. um, so that, in addition to maintaining a healthy diet, should help with the weight control. Okay. I'm actually going to ask a follow-up question on that in a second here. But first, I have two other follow-up questions. <laughs> <laughs> That's just what I do best. I think it was the CDC, or maybe it was the National Cancer Institute that said, as far as alcohol consumption, the recommendation is seven per week or less, preferably less. I heard you say three. Is that just what you recommend because you want to be more conservative to your patients, or is that actually research-based? 
That is research-based. The latest studies have uh, surfaced that suggest even one glass of alcohol per day is too much for Mm -hmm. breast cancer risk. It elevates the risk by about 15%. So it's recommended um, three glasses per week or less. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's so sad. Yeah. Okay. And then, <laughs> and then with regard to breastfeeding, because I feel like I, if I was listening to this podcast, I would probably have this question, although I think I know what the answer is. Is it the act of breastfeeding? Is it the production of milk? Or is it the lack of a period that reduces your risk or all of the above? So that's a great question. It's probably a com- combination of at least two factors. Um, it does uh, reduce the number of periods and cycles that women have, and that's felt to be protective against developing breast cancer. Mm-hmm. But additionally, the process of nursing stimulates the breast tissue to, you know, to this hyper-stimulated point where it's able to produce milk. And it's felt that once most of those cells get to that point, it's much harder to stimulate them more as a cancer, as something that's causing cancer can. So they're, they're Hmm. less stimulatable because of the process of nursing, but it's also because of the reduced numbers of cycles as well. So it's a, it's two benefits actually to that. Okay. Okay. And then I'm sorry, I have one more follow-up question based on that then. And this has always confused me and hopefully you can answer this, but if you can't, it's okay. I'm sure you can though. I think I, I overthink this way too much. If Why is it then, if you're on birth control, do they say that increases your risk? Although I hear that really the increase is minimal. If you know, When I was on birth control for 10 years, like I, I never had a period. It sounds like that would have been protective. So how does that work? Well, when one is nursing, you're not having cycles because it has altered the hormonal, um, the hormonal um, factors in your cycle. Mm-hmm. But when one is on birth control, they're still having an estrogen and progesterone stimulation of the breast tissue. It's just at a lower level. So there is okay. a slight difference between being on birth control and nursing in terms of how those hormones, in terms of the hormones. Okay. Um, but studies have not really been conclusive that birth control is a risk factor for breast cancer. Some mm-hmm. of the early studies suggested it because much earlier forms of oral contraceptive pills had much higher levels of estrogen and progesterone in them. Now we are, our formulations are very low dose and right. it's really the risk of breast cancer is felt to be negligible. In okay. fact, in women who have a BRCA or a genetic defect who are at a very high lifetime risk of breast cancer, um, it's recommended that they go on birth control for several years until um, they undergo or have their ovaries removed. Um, Mm -hmm. And that's not felt to increase their risk of breast cancer. Okay. The other benefit to oral contraceptives is it is, it does reduce the risk of ovarian cancer. Mm -hmm. So I've heard that. Okay. Everything in medicine is kind of a risk benefit ratio and probably, <laughs> you know, the risks are not um, outlying the the benefits in terms of the oral contraceptive pills. Okay. Yeah. And I, and I think that's what I generally hear, but you, you still get mixed messages from some doctors or from, you know, Google searches. So thank you for clearing that up. Yeah. 
Well, kind of continuing with risk factors, we talked about several, but there's various other websites and other outlets that have plenty listed um, that can kind of be argued um, out of proportion or perhaps even underrated. So if Gina's going to kind of run through a list of some of these risk factors, and we were hoping you could just provide some of some feedback on whether you feel as though there's there's more myth or more fact to, sure. <laughs> to kind of their <laughs> credibility. Okay. okay, so the first one is going to be a little loaded. I will I will warn you, and it has to okay. do with body weight. So we already talked about talked about that. Uh, Nicole and I have been very clear on our opinions on this podcast that we believe that women and men can be healthy at any size. I actually just finished reading the book Health at Every Size: The Surprising Truth About Your Weight by Linda Bacon. If you haven't read it, I would highly recommend it. Uh, and I just want to read a small passage from the book for you. It said, after a review of 26 cohort studies and a report looking at weight as a risk factor for breast cancer, only three showed a significant association, while two showed a decreased risk of breast cancer for the obese. Uh, So I guess, would you agree or not that overall healthy habits and health habits and balanced lifestyle are more important than the number on the scale when it comes to breast cancer risk? Well, hmm, that is a loaded question. (laughs) Um, You know, certainly healthy habits are important Mm -hmm. across the board. But um, from my readings and the studies that I am familiar with, many of them point to being overweight and being obese as being a significant risk factor for postmenopausal breast cancer. There have Mm -hmm. been some studies suggesting that premenopausal overweightness or being obese um, doesn't have that same risk and actually might be protective for some reason we don't quite understand. But the Uh reason why we believe that being obese postmenopausally is a risk factor is that increased fat or lipid content in individuals and especially visceral versus um, uh, somatic fat is that that excess fatty tissue contains more estrogen um, and which then is stimulated in the bloodstream and can stimulate the breast cells, which could be cancer causing. So it's related Mm -hmm. to the excess fatty tissue, which can be converted into estrogen and thus be stimulatable. Um, Okay. So that's, that's what we think about being overweight. And, and and maybe you already said this, and I apologize. Would you say then that it is women who put on excess weight postmenopausal, or what if they, let's say, were overweight according to the BMI? Which, you know, I, I put that in quotes. Overweight, um, they're in larger bodies pre-menopause, and then they stay in either those, you know, quote unquote, overweight or obese bodies post. Are their risk factors the same as a woman who might go into menopause at a quote unquote normal weight and then gain weight to the point where they're, you know, in an unhealthy quote unquote weight? Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if they've teased those specifics out of the studies, but uh, my understanding is they would both be at increased risk okay. because it's it's. Postmenopausally, when women are in a lower estrogen environment to begin with, with this excess lipomatous or fatty tissue, they are increasing the amount of estrogen in their body. So mm-hmm. either way, 
they're going to have that okay. same effect. Okay. Thank Some you. Some studies I, I appreciate- have also shown that women who are overweight or put on over uh, put on weight that are breast mm-hmm. cancer survivors, unfortunately, have uh, a little bit greater chance of recurrence and maybe mm-hmm. a little bit diminished overall survival. So it is a mm-hmm. factor in both prevention, but also um, in, you know, survivorship. Do you do things with, uh, do you have any support groups um, in your office? I just think I, when you were, when you just said that, I think of a woman that I used to work with, a coworker of mine who had breast cancer and afterwards put on a significant amount of weight because she just was so tired all the time. You know, so many things she went through, she had to get her breast removed and then she had, um, reconstructive surgery. And there's so many factors went into her putting on some weight after um, she finally got rid of the breast cancer. So do you have support groups or good resources for your patients? I assume you do during that terrible time. Yeah. So once we've diagnosed a breast cancer, we put them in the hands of specialists who treat the breast cancer, the breast cancer surgeons and the medical oncologists, the radiation therapists, et cetera. And that's generally their avenue for accessing those types of support groups. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. Okay. So we're going to go on with these risk factors that we kind of want you to either say are, you know, fact or fiction. And the next one is estrogen use, um, specifically hormone replacement therapy. Sure. Okay. So um, that you know, is a hot topic as well. Maybe not Mm -hmm. so hot anymore, but um, there was a study of several years ago, the Women's Health Initiative, which was a multi-center, multi-institutional study that looked at the effects of hormone replacement and breast cancer risk, in addition to some other things, stroke, um, heart disease, et cetera. And they found that in women who were on the combination hormone replacement therapy, so estrogen and progesterone, but only one formulation, which was at that time PremPro, they did have a slightly increased risk of breast cancer. So looking at absolute numbers, about seven or eight per 10,000 women developed breast cancer from hormone replacement therapy. However, conversely, women who were on only estrogen replacement therapy, and those are women who've had a hysterectomy, um, they did not show that same increased risk. And in fact, later, um, an analysis of the study suggested that their risk, overall risk might have been a little bit lower if they're only on estrogen replacement therapy. So it's not completely understood, but it's felt that it may be in part the progesterone component that... um, is imparting this increased risk with hormone replacement therapy. So it is recommended that women who choose to um, utilize hormone replacement therapy because of, you know, intolerable symptoms, inability to sleep or um, the vasomotor symptoms of hot flashes, et cetera, just to be on them for as short a time as possible. And there was felt that, you know, up to three to five years was probably okay. And then once mm-hmm. individuals went off the hormone replacement therapy, after five years, their risk went back down. There was no more um, increased risk at that time. Hmm. Okay. Thank you. Okay. What about soy intake? Sure. So soy is another um, substance that has received a lot of attention in the past and e- even now because soy is 
called a phytoestrogen. And it was felt like, oh, it's an estrogen. It, it has to be bad. It has to cause breast cancer. But phytoestrogen is just a plant-based estrogen-like substance um, that is structurally different and significantly weaker than human estrogen. It doesn't turn into estrogen when one ingests it, and it doesn't increase cancer growth in studies. So it is believed now that soy is safe for consumption for people mm -hmm. without breast cancer and even for breast cancer survivors who've had estrogen receptor positive cancer. However, that being said, it's more important that people um, obtain or you know, utilize soy food substances such as tofu or edamame or soy milk as opposed mm -hmm. to the soy powders or soy supplements because those usually the concentration is much greater. So mm -hmm. women who you know have one to two servings of soy foods per day or per week or whatever are not at any increased risk for breast cancer. And in fact, one study suggested that it might be protective and another study looked at young women or um, young adults or adolescents who increased their soy consumption and they had lower risk of breast cancer. So that might be a take home message for young women. Yeah. And, and kind of going back to what you said about the whole soy foods versus the isolates and the concentrates, I would say also the benefit of those foods like temp tempeh and miso and tofu are that they also have fiber and they probably keep you fuller um, protein. So they have other things in them that are beneficial versus just the, you know, the soy powders and, uh, you know, supplements. That's exactly okay. right. Yes. And what about, and I don't hear much as much about this one, but what about dairy? Anything about dairy? I, you know, I've heard some people say don't eat dairy because it increases your risk for, for breast cancer. Uh, anything to that? Yeah, that's a, a tricky one because in 2018, the American Cancer Society, you know, claimed that there was no increased risk of dairy or, you know, specifically milk with breast cancer. But there was just recently, a few months ago, a study that came out of Loma Linda University that suggested women who drink um, milk did have an increased risk of breast cancer. Mm -hmm. But it was specifically milk. It wasn't yogurt or um, other dairy type products, cheese, things like that. So, hmm. no, that. It, it's hard to know at this point. It's a little confusing dairy in general. We don't want women to get away from dairy altogether because, of course, that is good for bone health, which is another women's health issue, you know, throughout their life. So um, hard to say at this point, but it seems mm -hmm. that some dairy things, yogurt, cheese, things like that are not felt to have that increased risk for breast cancer. Part Were of it the is part if, oh, if women are going to, you know, um, use dairy products, I would recommend that they make sure that they're hormone free. You mean like the recombinant bovine hormone? Correct. Oh, okay. Now that's interesting. We've, we've kind of dabbled in that, in that topic. So you're saying it should be free. See, I was always under the impression that that didn't really, so, so why do you say that? Well, um, <laughs> Yeah. So I, I think, well, I don't know. I, I don't want to go there. Let's, 
Let's. <laughs> is that a, another loaded question? Where yeah. there's way too much information. <laughs> exactly. They can. They always it, say it, on the milk jug, there's no evidence to show that it increases your risk of. I don't know what it says exactly, but something yeah. to make you as a consu- as a consumer feel safe consuming it. Yeah, I think intuitively, I think there are some concerns that these this increased incidence of breast cancer that we're seeing across the board and in young women as well. Uh-huh. It's possibly related to the increased use of hormones that we're using in cattle for meat and for milk, mm-hmm. um, you know, to increase their production. So mm-hmm. I guess okay. that's my, I, I think intuitively it makes sense to try and avoid those products that have used excess hormones. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I, I, I respect that answer. I really do. I mean, it, it's not something that I necessarily try to avoid, but the truth is I don't drink that much milk. So maybe if I did, you know, drink the quote unquote three glasses a day that they sometimes used, you know, used to recommend, right. perhaps I would look to avoid that. But since I, you know, drink milk in moderation and really eat milk in moder or eat meat in moderation, I guess I just don't even think about it very often. But I think you're right. Intuitively, that does make sense. So maybe we'll have, maybe there'll be more, more to come on that topic. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's never the wrong recommendation, right? I mean, that's what it boils down to. I know there are some studies looking. There are some studies that are specifically looking at that. So I think there is going to be more to come. Okay. I'm really, I'm really curious to to see that. All right. And that kind of goes back to your first recommendation about, you know, eating mainly plants, having a mainly vegetarian diet. And, you know, I couldn't agree more with that. Um, but we're not saying don't consume milk or don't consume meat. It's just if you're going to do so in moderation and I guess, especially in the future, if a study comes out that shows it's linked to cancer, try not to get that recombinant bovine hormone that we see on labels. All right. So the next one is, has, it's kind of a, a, a stark contrast from our previous topic of food. Let's talk about breast density. I've been told that I have um, high breast uh, high breast density, I guess, which I, I think I have no idea what that really even means. I have very, very small boobs. So I think to myself, how can I have high dense boobs when I don't have any boobs? So can you explain that and how sure. it would increase my risk? Yeah. So when we talk about dense breasts, we should talk a little bit about what the breasts are composed of. So the breasts are composed of basically two tissues, the milk producing tissues, which show up white on a mammogram and the fatty tissues, which show up black on a mammogram. And every patient has a mixture of both of those types of tissues. Mm -hmm. Some women have more of the milk producing and less of the fatty. And some women have most of the fatty and less of the milk producing. So women who have more of the milk producing or the white are considered to have dense breasts. And Uh that's because (laughs) breast cancers are also white. So Radiologists are trying to find little changes or little white spots on a mammogram. You can certainly see how it would be much more challenging if there's already a lot of normal whiteness on that mammogram than if the breast tissue was all black and then a little Mm -hmm. white cancer would just stand right out. So dense breasts are challenging because um, they might potentially hide a small cancer. So there's the risk of that once that cancer's made. Cancers that are discovered mammographically might on average be larger because they have to get to a certain size before they're actually recognized. But the other thing about dense breasts is studies are starting to suggest that 
dense breasts, meaning they have more of the milk producing tissue, might in fact also impart greater risk of developing breast cancer than fatty replaced breasts. The latest mm. thinking is, so there are four categories of breast density. There's women who have almost completely fatty replaced breasts. That's about 10% of the population. Women who have a small amount of the fibroglandular tissue and mostly fatty tissue, that's about 40% of women. Women who have about 50-50 um, dense tissue and fatty tissue, that's about 40% of the population. And then women who have almost you know, a whiteout because they have very little fatty tissue and mostly dense tissue, and that's about 10% of the population. Mm -hmm. So the risk of breast cancer is about one and a half to two times for women who are in those two higher categories versus the women who are in the two lower categories. It's not mm -hmm. the mechanism is not completely understood, but it's thought that maybe because there are more, there's a greater density of actual um, active breast cells in the denser breasts that they um, um duplicate and replicate more frequently and more chance for some damage to that replication process to occur. Okay. So I'm thinking about this now. I was known as a milk goddess when I had both of my children. I made so much milk. I probably could have donated to all of Ohio. So yeah, this makes sense. When the lady, I had a mammogram not too long ago and she said I had really dense breasts and that must mean, so I have a lot of milk ducts basically, right? Milk duct tissues. You have a lot of the milk producing <laughs> tissue. Yes. Okay. Milk. Yeah. That makes milk producing. Yeah. I said that wrong. Okay. Which is interesting because I think to myself, one of the reasons why I was so good at sticking to breastfeeding. I mean, I would have given up if I, if I was not producing enough milk. I know a lot of friends who didn't weren't high producers. So for me, hopefully I then reduced my risk by breastfeeding as long as I did because I made so much milk. So that's interesting to me that women who have, who most likely who, who are high producers are also uh, have high breast density. And they probably are the ones who are who tend to go longer because it's you know a little bit quote unquote easier for them because they make so much. Anyway, I'm going off on a tangent. I'm just thinking about this, and I'm like, this all makes sense. Yeah, but when you okay. think about it, nursing actually, you know, it's a win win situation. It provides all the extra nutrients and protective factors for the baby, and it also mm -hmm. reduces the risk for the mom. So it's a wonderful yeah. thing to do. Not everybody can do it, but if mm -hmm. one has the opportunity to do it, it's a wonderful thing to do. Yeah, yeah. All right. So we've got two more. So the next one is breast implants. Can you talk a little bit about whether that increases risk and if it does, how so, or if it doesn't, great, because I really want to get them. <laughs> <laughs> so they do not increase the risk of breast cancer. Um, it used to be that implants were placed um, in front of the muscle and sort of beneath the the glandular tissue of the breast. And so that typically made it more challenging for us to image the breast tissue well on a mammogram. So there was a chance that maybe we wouldn't be able to image all of the breast tissue and something could be missed because we simply weren't imaging it. Now, mm -hmm. most of the um, procedures for breast implants, the breast implant is placed behind the muscle. And that makes it much easier for us to be able to image nearly all of the breast tissue. Not much differently than women who don't have breast implants. 
one, you know, challenge for women is instead of the typical four view mammogram, now women with breast implants have to eight views because we do four pictures with the implant in place. And then we do four pictures where we push the implant out of place so we can image all of that breast tissue. Um, But it does give us a pretty good look at all the breast tissue, which is great. But no studies have shown that the implant itself causes breast cancer. There is one very rare um, cancer that can occur with breast implants. There's Mm -hmm. only a handful of reported cases in the literature. Um, It's an anaplastic large cell lymphoma, and it it forms um, around the shell of the implant, around that tissue that's around the implant. And it's not understood exactly why it is felt to be a little bit more common in a rough surface implant versus a smooth surface implant. Again, it's very rare, but it is a cancer that can be related to implants. Okay. But not breast cancer. Right. Okay. Okay. So the last one is breast pain. I, I, and I wanted to add to that. Can you talk about what to look for when doing um, a breast exam specifically? When should you be concerned? I will say I have definitely turned into a hypochondriac in my, as I, as I age, because I feel I'm almost afraid to give myself breast exams because I'm afraid even if I find the smallest little bump, I'm going to freak out and, you know, go get a mammogram. I just, I get very concerned when I, when I'm feeling my breast and doing an exam, every little thing I'm like, Oh my gosh, is that cancer? So can you just talk a little bit about uh, specifically breast pain? And then also, I guess I'm asking two questions here. Is breast pain bad? And then going into exactly when you should be concerned if you feel something in your breast. Sure. Well, let me just tell you, you're in good company. Many, many, many women have a lot of anxiety about breast exam. And I Mm -hmm. hear from women all the time that they don't really examine themselves because it makes them anxious or it makes them nervous. They don't like feeling their breasts. So you're in good company. But um, I still encourage them to do it because I think when one does it on a regular basis and one gets to know what that normal consistency feels like, then it's less alarming because the breasts are generally lumpy. That's normal. (laughs) Everybody has lumpy breasts. That lumpiness should be about the same from side to side, should be the same throughout the breast and from month to month. Um, So as long as, you know, lumpiness itself is not bad, what you're trying to find is something that stands out as very different than what you're used to. It's going to typically be harder might be more discreet. You can point to it. It's there all the time. You don't have to get into some weird position, you know, standing on your head or upside down to be able to feel it. You're going to be able to feel it because it'll be something there. Mm -hmm. Um, So I encourage women to do it because also if there's something there, you want to find it because it's not going to go away. It's only going to get bigger. And studies, we know that the smaller we find things and treat things, the greater the chance for cure. Mm-hmm. So I hope that encourages you to continue to do breast self-exam. Yeah, it does. And you mentioned month to month. So for me, I always get like a lump. I would call it, I guess, I don't, I don't know what else to call it. Although my doctor did give it a name and I wrote it down here, a fibroadenoma. Fibroadenoma. Thank mm-hmm. you. Okay. <laughs> so I get, I get that about three days to four days before my period. So he actually told me to always do my breast exam about a week after my period, since I always tend to get more 
um, of those tissues that I feel right before my period. So would you agree with that? That's the best time to do your exam about a week after your period? That's exactly right. The breasts will be least sensitive because a lot of women have some premenstrual tenderness, which is normal, but -hmm. they'll also be less sort of lumpy or swollen per se. Um, Fibrocystic changes is a very common condition where fluid-filled cysts form in the breast, and they can have a cyclic pattern as well. Sometimes they will arise before the period and then resolve again. So we do Mm -hmm. recommend that women examine their breasts ideally after their period is over, like right after their period is over. Okay. Okay, great. Thank you so much. And then the lastly, the breast pain. I know breast pain is normal right before your period, but what if you get random breast pain in the middle of your cycle? Yeah. So breast pain is very common. It's the most common thing we evaluate women for. Rarely does it signify anything serious in the breast. Um, The only time we become slightly concerned about breast pain, still not likely to be um, serious, but might be in these instances is when it's associated with something else, a lump or changes in the skin or um, something that is persistent and there all the time. It doesn't go away and you can point to it with one finger. Like I said, Mm -hmm. still not likely to be um, associated with a serious malignancy, but those would be instances that you should seek evaluation. But breast pain in general is very common. It's typically hormonal. It's one of the responses of the breast to the normal cyclic variation of hormones that we experience as women every month. Um, It can be related to a lot of other things. It can be related to... um, the underlying chest wall, if one's been, you know, suddenly doing some different kind of movement or exercise, there can be referred pain to the breast from the chest wall or from the ribs, lots of different reasons for breast pain. Most of the time it comes out of the blue, sticks around for a little while and then goes away again. Okay. Interesting. Anything else there, Gina? uh, Or Dr. (laughs) Siren? I think I've asked all my questions. Thank you, Nicole. <laughs> well, I guess I do have a question. Um, as a um, breast exams to me are like flossing. You know, it's one of those things where if you don't become regimented about it, it's just one thing that kind of time goes by and and you've forgotten. Is there just like a couple quick tips for women in in performing a self exam? Um, as in how to do it or when to yeah, do it? Or- yeah. Well, I, I mean, when I think we touched base on, but I, I mean, like, actually just the how. I don't know that sure. I've ever I've properly learned. learned. So why? Yeah. What better time? Uh, exactly. So I encourage women to do it when it's easy for them. So they're not like interrupting their day or they're not specifically having to say, oh, my goodness, I have to undress right now because I have to do a breast exam. One can do it in the shower when you're already unclothed and, you know, you're sudsing up. So that's an opportunity to examine oneself or to do it in bed in the morning time before one gets up or at night um, at nighttime before you're getting ready to go to bed. So those are good, convenient times to examine one breath, one's breasts. And as we mentioned, best to do it after the period's over. Um, I recommend to women not to get too hung up in the technique. Am I doing it right? Is it circles? Is it, you know, <laughs> deep, shallow pressure, et cetera? It's more important just to kind of get to use, get used to knowing how your breasts feel to you. It is important to examine the entire breast. So um, 
starting, I, I like to examine the breast in a radial fashion, starting at the nipple and like the spokes of the wheel going from the nipple outward. Um, and that way I'm ensuring that I'm examining the entire breast. But we want to do it up to the collarbone. That's how high the breast might extend all the way to the underarm area. That's how far laterally the breast might extend all the way down to the top where the breast might meet the abdomen. That's how low we want to go. And then all the way over to the breastbone. And that's how far inward we want to go. And just doing it in a, in a pattern. I like the spoke wheel. Some people like to go side to side or up to down. And just getting to know how that consistency feels. And you will know when there's something different there. I had a patient mm -hmm. once who had very large, very lumpy breasts. And she found her own cancer, which was quite small. And she said to me, tell your patients they will know when there's something mm -hmm. there that shouldn't be. Interesting. Mm -hmm. huh. It's also important, however, I encourage women to always look at their breasts. So I say, look, listen, and feel. You want to look to make sure that the contour is nice and smooth, that there's nothing being dimpled or tugged in, that the nipple is outward pointing. So there's no changes in the contour of the breast. Um, and then listen to your intuition. If you just think there's something that's not right, let your doctor know about it. It's our job to figure out whether there's really something there or not. And then, of course, feeling, as we mentioned. So look, listen, and feel is a good, my mantra for a breast exam. Perfect. That's really helpful. Really, really helpful. Uh, well, I learned a ton. And I know you told us a bit about your practice at the very beginning. Um, for those listening, particularly those in the Columbus, Ohio area, how can listeners get in touch with you um, to make an appointment or, or learn more? Just how can they connect? Sure. So we do have a website. It's um, kmcbreastcenter.com. has a number of pages with all sorts of information on there. It tells a little bit about what we are and what services we offer. Um, or they can call me directly. I'm always more than willing to talk to patients if they have questions or they can email me. Um, KM Siren at kmcbreastcenter.com. The phone number would be 614-459-1596. So website for general information. They can email me if they have concerns or questions, or they can call us if they simply wanted to make, make an appointment for screening mammogram or a breast exam or, you know, to, for a risk assessment. We provide all of those services. Awesome. And we'll put that in our show notes. So if if any of our listeners didn't write that down or want to repeat it, we will put that in our show notes so you can see all that information. Great. Well, thank you so much. We uh, were so privileged to have you with us today. And I think we can both say that we just learned a ton of information and really, really appreciate it. Well, thank you. Thank you so much for having me on. And you know, hopefully we can do this again sometime. We'd love that. Maybe maybe when the, the study comes out about the recombinant bovine hormone, <laughs> there we, we can talk about that. <laughs> Sounds good. All right. Thanks, thanks so much for your time. Okay. Bye-bye. All right. So, Nicole, after that conversation with Dr. Siren, I, I feel like I've, I've just learned so much. But I was really intrigued by the, by the family history question that we asked at first. You know, so the question is, do you have breast cancer in your family? Uh, I'll, I'll go ahead and start. So, I do have breast cancer in my family, but actually that I'm aware of, I do not have any breast cancer on my mother's side. So my, my maternal side, all of the breast cancer in my family is on my paternal side, my father's side. 
which I guess, unless it's a genetic defect, which I've been told it is not, I, it does, I, I, that's, that's good for me that it's not on my maternal side. So I was not aware of that. I did not understand. I did not have that information prior to talking to Dr. Uh, Siren. So I'm, I'm kind of excited to hear that. What about you? And not to say that I, I mean, obviously, as she mentioned, I think she said the majority of people who get breast cancer don't even have it in their, in their family history. So it doesn't yeah. really mean much, but it's still, you know, somewhat good news to, to my ears. So what about you? Do you have breast cancer in your family? Uh, yeah. And I believe she said, if there is risk, it's still, you're there if there is cancer in your breast cancer in your family particularly on the mother's side it's a, still a one to two fold increased risk so yeah i believe yeah. was her don't quote me on that i know we just talked talk to her but um, whatever she said i got excited like oh that's yeah. not terrible but still yeah. 85% then of women that have breast cancer do not have a family history. So I do not have yeah. a family history. And I guess for me, you kind of have a sigh of relief um, after speaking mm-hmm. with her. And I'm kind of more like, oh, I need to, you know, put that on my radar a bit more um, mm-hmm. because I was under the impression family history had a bit more uh, part to play anyway in mm-hmm. my breast cancer risk and good to know that it doesn't. So, yeah, I mean, not good, but good, you know, it's no, like prevention is huge, right? Or, or early detection. Yeah, I, I honestly thought that a family history had more of a was more of a risk factor as well because they always ask you that on any when you go to any doctor and fill out any like new patient forms, you know, do you have breast cancer in your family and which side of the family was it? And how old were they? It's really for any cancer. But yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. So have you ever had a, ma- a mammogram, Nicole? I have not, but you have. Mm-hmm. So tell us about it. I have. So I think and, and actually we didn't even talk about this with Dr. Siren. I'm pretty sure the it's the age of 40 that you start having mammograms every year, right? We didn't even hit on that. I'm pretty Ooh. sure it's 40 though. I'm literally scratching my head. I think you're right though. I think it's 40. But yes, I had one last year when I was 36. And the reason was I actually was one night I was just laying in bed and I rolled over to turn off the light. And all of a sudden on my right breast, I felt it was hard. And I was like, what is that? And kind of painful. And I went to feel it and it was felt like a lump. I mean, and you, of course, I, I freaked out a little bit. And I was like, oh my gosh, what is that? It just felt very, very foreign to me. And I will say this was probably just kind of a, a brief history. I've only been getting a period because I've only been off of birth control for the for about two years now. So my cycle, I'm still really kind of getting to know my cycle because I was on birth control for so long. And then I had Paige and then I got an IUD and then I had Cameron. I breastfed him for a year. So really, my cycle has only be- begun to kind of normalize over the past like one to two years. I never used to get breast pain before my period. I do now. I never had any breast changes at all. But as of that day, when I felt that, so I, I made an appointment. I did end up getting a mammogram after seeing my OBGYN and everything was fine. It ended up being a fibroadenoma. <laughs> I think I pronounced that right. So basically I have very dense tissues, as I just said, and the doctor said that it is going to be very normal for me to find these, um, these dense tissue particles, um, spots on my breast right before my period. And that's of course when I felt this. So not to be alarmed, uh, as long as it then goes away almost immediately after I start my period, or at least, um, sometime right after, which it did. And and I, I get that same lump every, I, I keep calling it a lump. It's a, the adenoma. Um, I get it every time I start my period about three days prior. Um, but that's really good for me to know. And as we were talking to Dr. Siren to make sure that you don't do your breast, um, exam until about a week after your period. 
since it is pretty normal to get those um, those fibrous tissues in your breasts right around your period. So you don't, you know, kind of get concerned. But the mammogram, I will say, I was wondering how I would even get a mammogram with my breasts because there's pretty much nothing there. <laughs> but they did end up actually getting a mammogram. They had to like, <laughs> if you can only imagine, they she pretty much had to like shove me into the machine, like hold me there so she could at least get my, you know, what I have of breasts into the machine. <laughs> it was rather uncomfortable, but not terrible. Like I'll do it again as many times as I need to. Yeah. They're not bad. <laughs> well, so according to cancer.org, women 40 to 44 should have the choice to start annual breast cancer screening. And then at 45, um, every year, 45 to the age of 54 mammograms every year. It says. Okay. Okay. Did you know that your anim- annual pap smear I did not realize this. Okay, so breast exams will detect already occurring cancer. So if you have a, a you know a mammogram and, and they spot cancer, you've already got the cancer. Obviously, it's 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 good as she said. If it's you know the smaller the lump is, the better. Um, the earlier you detect it, the better. But when you get a, 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 a Pap smear, they're actually detecting precancerous cells. So getting a Pap smear, if if they if they find something abnormal and it they're not telling you that you have cancer. They're actually doing the pap smear to detect pre-cancer. I did not even know that until I had this conversation with my doctor at my pap smear a few weeks ago. Did you know that? Uh, I believe so, but I honestly okay. haven't had a pap in so long. I know that I need one like Q1 yeah. of next year, but I think it's every three years. Oh no, correct? my doctor says that you should get one every single year. Why not? If it detects cancer yeah. before it even happens, why wouldn't you do it every year? Yeah, yeah. And he says the insurance companies will make you think that you only need it every three years. Oh. We had a long conversation about that. Yeah. Freaking insurance. Yeah. Gosh. All right. So what do you do? What are your top two to three things, Nicole, to kind of end this uh, long episode to keep your breasts healthy and protect yourself from breast cancer? Uh, not enough. I mean, that's my biggest takeaway. I think... Um, you know, always and forever, just trying to, as a social drinker who's very social, just really checking the alcohol. Um, I think that's my biggest thing. Okay. Yeah. What about you? Yeah. And, and, and I've talked about that several times on this podcast. Same, same with me. I've actually put into practice over the past year, I would say aiming for three glasses of alcohol or less per week. And I would say I'm generally doing really, really well in that regard, but not always. Uh, let's see. Oh, and then I would say also just staying informed. I'm so glad that we found Dr. Siren and we were able to talk with her. I will also highly recommend a podcast. I, I will put a link to it in the show notes. I cannot remember exactly what it's called, but it's, her name is Dr. Heather Hirsch. And she did a really good episode that can be a good follow-up to this one. If you're curious about some more information and it's episode number 33, which again, I will put a link to in our show notes, but she does a lot of just women's health topics on her podcast. And I'm always um, learning a lot from her. So just staying informed, I would say, is something that I do just to keep my breasts healthy. All right, moving on. Mom wins our favorite new products. Uh, mine is a 30 minute and it's truly 30 minute, maybe less. It's probably more mm. like 25 um, instant pot butter chicken recipe. That sounds so good. So good. I actually read the directions all wrong and made it my own way. <laughs> Turned out great and no. far easier than the original recipe. I was like, bonus. So sometimes not being able to read is a good thing. But yeah, I'll link that in the show notes. 
That sounds awesome. All right. And then I made my world famous butternut squash lasagna recently. I will. Okay. So I used to have a blog and it was on there. It's no longer, you can't find it anymore in the, you know, the Google or uh, the World Wide Web, I should say. However, I did, all you have to do is take in your favorite lasagna recipe. And I will put these uh, directions in our show notes. And instead of lasagna noodles, use par-baked, thinly sliced slices of butternut squash. So I will take a butternut squash. I'll kind of cook it a little bit to get it soft or I'll have my husband, you know, slice it for me, but slice it long. Um, and you'll probably end up getting like maybe six to eight slices in each butternut squash. So it's about a half an inch to a quarter inch thick. Par bake it and then put that down as your lasagna noodle. And it's delicious. Um, so again, I, I put a link to the recipe I used from all recipe in the show notes. And then again, just instead of, of noodles, I use butternut squash and my family devours it. All right. So next on to a review. This one says fun and relatable. It's from EKG013. Love listening. They are down to earth and keep it real. Great advice, recommendations for us all and not just those with kiddos. Thank you so much. I think the last person said that too. All right. So coming up on October 18th, we will be dishing about sugar substitutes. Until then, keep in touch with us on social media at Dietitians Dish Podcast on both Facebook and Instagram. And check out all of our episodes and show notes on our website, dietitiansdishpodcast.com. Also, please tell your friends about us. They can find us on numerous outlets such as Overcast, iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and Pocket Cast. And if you listen on iTunes, be sure to leave us a review. We promise it only takes a few seconds. All right. Until next time, everyone, be well. And Nicole, I'll talk to you soon. Take care, Gina. Bye-bye. See ya. Thank you for listening for the podcast. Bye-bye.